0: So uh, there, there's something about that song. I don't know if you know the history of that song written during the Civil War by uh, Longfellow. And as he was looking at the Civil War events and some of the history that was happening at that time, he was, he was noticing that there was, there was great um, horror happening in our country. And he, he, he wrote the, this verse, In despair I bowed my head because as I looked, there's no peace on earth, I said. Hate strong, it mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. So, so what he noticed in our culture, in our world, in our country, was hatred that ran into the face of the message of peace that Christ brought that day that he was born in the manger. But as he examined the Christmas story, he had to finish the thought by saying this, then, then the bells pealed more loudly and deep, God is not dead, he doesn't sleep, the wrong will fail, the right will prevail, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. So, so today, when we think about love I, I, but Jimmy, and Beth, that was awesome. I, I, one of the reasons that I, I thought of them is because when you look at old pictures of me, you're like, "There's no way that's Frank. You've ever seen old pictures of Jimmy? <laughs> he and I go to the same barber now, so it's, you know we fixed all that. But, 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 but the, the reality is in the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and most of the time, it's our own fault. But in the circumstances we find ourselves, we often question, so where's this peace you spoke of? Where's this love you spoke of? And I don't think it's, it's more clearly communicated anywhere in Scripture than in that passage that they read this morning in, in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read it again to, to keep it in our minds. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 2. It's a very, very familiar passage, particularly this time of year. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, and as I read it, what I want to challenge you to do is this. Listen and read along with what's there, not what you think is there. So don't think about all the movies you've seen, the little kids' books you've read. Listen and read what's actually here and how unromantic it actually is. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so everybody went to be registered, each one to his own town. Joseph, he also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and the family line of David. He went to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Uh, I think oftentimes we read that story and we have so romanticized it and sanitized it that we miss out on the power of the story. When you begin, even right out of the gate, the man that is mentioned, it's Caesar Augustus. He is a historical figure who is very well known. If you've done any reading about who Caesar Augustus is, you'll know he was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. And and Julius Caesar took an affinity to his his grand-nephew and and, and treated him like a son so much so that when, when this young man, whose name originally was Gaius Octavius, When he became 20 years old, Julius Caesar adopted him as his own son. His name became Octavian. And you know the story of Caesar, right? You've you've read Shakespeare. Et tu, Brute? (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But 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 Caesar is assassinated and the the empire, the Roman Empire at the time, is split up into three and then one of the guys just kind of drops off. And so it's down to two fellas who are over the Roman Empire. And it's Octavian, who's the character here in our story, and another fellow named Mark Antony. Ever heard of him? And so now they have this, 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 um, this co-reign happening in the Roman Empire. And, and Mark Antony, uh, politically, he marries Octavian's sister to make sure their relationship stays tight. So now they're brother-in-laws. Okay, that's all good. But then, uh, then, then Mark Antony begins to do things that bother Octavian. The main one being this. He falls in love with this lady from Egypt named Cleopatra. And he leaves his wife. Don't forget, when Mark Antony leaves his wife, he's actually leaving Octavian's sister. He leaves his wife and he begins to pay more attention to Cleopatra than he does the Roman Empire. He begins to pay more attention to Egypt than he does Rome. And so now there's hubbub happening back in the Roman Empire that actually Mark Antony is, is against Rome. This great battle ensues. It's Mark Antony versus Octavian, and, and there's a huge naval battle that occurs. And the Roman navy decimates the Egyptian navy. And now Octavian is the sole leader and emperor of Rome. That's solidified after Mark Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide together. And then the Roman Senate looks at Octavian and says, we need to give this man a new name. He had already assumed the name Caesar to honor his great uncle. And what they did is they named him Augustus, Augustus, is the word that actually uh, means majestic one, highly honored one. It's It's a term that is reserved for their false gods. And emperor worship began in full at that moment. So instead of being Octavian, he is now Caesar Augustus. And he becomes one of the greatest emperors in world history. He is a military genius. He is a political genius. He is a social genius. But beyond all of those things, he is an administrative master. So he was able to to manipulate situations and politics and people and construct things and come up with plans to construct things. So they constructed a water work system and a sewer system that is still a a marvel to us at this point. Many of the things that he did were uh, with city planning. We still pattern our city planning after what he did 2,000 years ago. He he constructed um, a road system 2,000 years ago in Rome that was so effective and so sturdy that many of the roads are still used today. He's known for bringing about a peace to the Roman Empire that had never happened before. Uh, If you're in school, you know as the Pax Romana. But this peace allowed the Roman Empire to live in relative Peace and harmony and not be challenged. Financially, he kept the coffers full. Financially, he was a whiz. He was very creative in the way he uh, raised money. And one of the ways he raised money was creative taxes, which are fueled by census. Census leads us back to the story. Taxes, so, so he passes this law. Everybody needs to go back to their hometown so that they can be taxed, so that we can keep a number of them to know how much money should be coming in. Now, taxes, everybody loves taxes, right? If you need evidence of that, just look at France right now. The yellow vest riots that are occurring, I, I think you'll understand not everybody enjoys taxes, and the people of Israel particularly didn't love taxes. You know why? Because it was a reminder That they were in exile it was a reminder that they didn't have their own kingdom they were a people in captivity they had no vote they had no voice and that they still had to hand over a certain amount of their money to help their captor build his kingdom so the census and the taxation wasn't anything wonderful You, you complicate that by the fact that everybody had to travel so far The travel was not an easy journey. For Joseph and Mary to leave Nazareth and to head to Bethlehem, that's a 90-mile journey by foot. They they would go down south and follow the the, the Jordan River. If you look at a Bible map, which I would encourage you to do, on a Bible map you've got two main bodies of water in Israel. You've got the Sea of Galilee and the uh, um, the Dead Sea. And, And basically Nazareth is up by the Sea of Galilee and Bethlehem is down by the Dead Sea. And so they would follow the Jordan River, which went between the two bodies of water, and they would follow that south through the flatlands. But as soon as they got towards Jerusalem, they would have to cut west. And when you cut west going to Jerusalem, it becomes incredibly mountainous and hilly and treacherous. A 90-mile journey is nothing to to laugh at. I mean, how many of you have walked 90 miles in the last month? How many of you get those fit trackers? And you're like, (laughs) I got 85, Frank. (laughs) I mean, it's a hard journey. It's a a long journey. There's a lot of uphill and downhill. I think if you were to consider um, some of the terrain, it's different, but maybe think about this. You know where the old Uniontown campus is up on Clear Ridge? Let's just walk towards Clear Ridge that way, down the hill, up the hill, around the hill. Not an easy journey. To add to that, Some of the most terrifying dangers in ancient Palestine were found in the forested valley of the Jordan River, that flatlands that they got to walk. It was the flat spot. That's great. And yet those forests were literally filled with lions, bears, and wild boars. So you're walking on foot, dodging lions, bears, and wild boars, just to keep it interesting. There's, there's uh, archaeological discoveries of, of pamphlets actually being written and handed out to tell people to beware. Be careful. There's lions and bears. There's, you need tigers and you can do a little Wizard of Oz stuff. But. So so then you add to that, here's a direct quote from one of those unearthed documents. Add to that you have to avoid the bandits, the pirates of the desert, and robbers. Because as you journeyed through the flatlands of the Jordan River Valley and you're surrounded by the trees on either side, it was an easy place for the bandits to hide. They would hide in the caves, they would hide behind uh, uh, rock structures, they would hide behind hills and they would come upon you and they would rob you. then just the length of the journey, I mean, 90 miles. Most people, the the, the extreme walk of a day would be 20 miles. That, That would be the most you could do in a day. A very healthy, fit person, perfect weather conditions, 20 miles a day. So right there, you're talking about a four- or five-day journey, but of course, this isn't an average couple taking the journey, right? Um, Don't romanticize traveling with a pregnant woman. I have to be very careful here. I love and honor all of you ladies, but journeys with moms-to-be tend to... um, take a bit longer. There's a lot of stops along the way for stretching, for inspecting the public facilities just to get out of the car. (laughs) So with that in mind, Joseph and Mary probably would have traveled about 10 miles a day. 10 miles a day. That probably means that journey is going to take twice as long. So now you're looking at an 8 to 10 day journey through treacherous terrain, dodging wild animals and thieves. Don't romanticize the journey. Don't romanticize the story. Don't romanticize what it was like when they came into Bethlehem and the place is jam packed with people. When when the census is called and everybody needs to return to their own homes, that instantly increases the population of the area. And so now it's it's quite uncomfortable. So now there's all kinds of people there. And 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 let me let me explain this. This is is important, okay? Remember, read what's there, not what you think is there. We need to stop demonizing this mythological creature called the innkeeper. He doesn't exist. There's no innkeeper. But in most movies, you've got this grumpy old man standing at the door going, right? There's no innkeeper. Why is there no innkeeper? Because actually, when you look at the word that's used here, uh, there's no guest room available for them. That's actually probably a more accurate translation of that word. So, So in our head, here's the problem is we're Americans and we live in the 21st century. and So when we think about inns, we think about hotels, the holiday inn. And so we, we're checking into town. We have no place to stay. This is obviously not where we're from. So we're just going to, we'll take a room for five nights, please. But, but you can't think hotel or motel. You can't even think motel six. Okay, it's not even on that level. Okay? In reality, the word that's used there, in some translations it does talk about an inn. In many translations it talks about a guest room. That same word is used in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, when Jesus tells his disciples to go and reserve the upper room for Passover so what's happening in this story is Mary and Joseph who who honestly as good Jewish a good Jewish couple wouldn't have stayed in a public facility along their journey because it's unclean and I don't mean like motel six unclean I mean like law unclean I mean like it's not kosher and so good Jewish couples wouldn't have stayed in any type of public facility. They would have gone back to their home city, their hometown as the census called for, and they would have found family to move in with. And most families at that time, they would have had their their structure would have been a um you know, they'd have had their their home, and right outside the front of their home would have been a gated in area where many of their animals would be kept, or their animals may have been kept in a cave adjoining to the home, or when it got cold, they would bring their animals into the home. And I thought cats were horrible. Sheep, why is the sheep on my couch? But they, and what they would do is then a, a second tier, a second stage of their building, their home, they would build on top of their roof. Sometimes they would enclose it, sometimes they wouldn't. And that would be the place where visiting family would stay. That would be the place where the guests would stay. That would be the type of place where Jesus and his disciples observed the last supper together. And so when they arrive in town, they're not being turned away from hotels. They're arriving to a family's home, most likely, and there's other family there, and they're all crammed in tight, and there's no room. There's no beds. So I tell you what, you could stay with the, the animals just take, grab a cot and crash down there. Uh, what I want you to do is, again, stop romanticizing the story and place yourself in the story. And maybe in order to do that, what you need to do is remember a time when your entire family was together. And you were crammed into one home. And remember, that home is definitely bigger than the homes at this point. And you have no possibility of escape. I probably said that wrong but it was my heart, so you know what I mean. <laughs> you're not getting away, and there's, there's all kinds of generations there, and you're all crammed in. It's like, okay, I, we, we had Thanksgiving dinner, and it wasn't that crammed, but, but the one moment during our Thanksgiving dinner this year was we're sitting on the, the well, it's, a pic, it's actually a picnic table in the, in the kitchen, which is really convenient when you're trying to cram a lot of people in, but we're sitting at the picnic table, and I'm trying to eat my turkey, and it's like, Hey, can you hand me the salt? I mean you're just so jammed in and you know that that feeling? Ugh now deliver a baby in the middle of that. Deliver a baby in the middle of that. And don't romanticize the story. In the middle of the, the cram-packed quarters, in the middle of the chaos of having all the family together, in the middle of having no room to even lay your head down on a bed, deliver a baby in the middle of that. And, and I don't have to say a whole lot here, and I want to be careful not to say too much here, other than this. Childbirth is naturally dangerous. Childbirth is no easy thing, or so I'm told. <laughs> um, there's noises. There's noises. I've shared with this before, there's screaming every once in a while, and then there's the mom. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So, so, so don't, don't romanticize this. There's no epidurals. There's no epidurals. There's no pain medication. And, 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 and I guess, okay. So what I find very interesting is even with epidurals and pain medication today, ladies, when you find out another young lady is pregnant, somehow you all come out of the woodwork with the worst pregnancy stories ever. (laughs) Why do you do that? Like, yeah, let me tell you about all the horrible things that could happen. What a great encouragement you are. (laughs) So no pain medicine, no epidurals, just lots of pain in a very crowded space. And the only thing more complicated than delivering a baby in the middle of that is having the actual baby in your arms in the middle of that. I don't know if you're paying attention, but new babies are loud, disruptive, inconsiderate. <laughs> They're disgusting at times. There's things and fluid and stuff that happens, it's gross. They're horrible roommates. <laughs> To say it like that, horrible roommates. But let's look at it this way, though. A brand new mom, age 13, maybe 14, not at home. A new baby is terrifying. You all know that. For any of you that have had children, your firstborn is one of the most terrifying experiences you've ever had. Every, Every breath that sounds a little different, Every sniffle, every hiccup, every cough—I mean, you you hear you hear just that faintest noise in your firstborn, and you are there over the crib, immediately, like, make sure, okay, check, make sure it's breathing. Okay, he's good. Good. Okay, okay. Which changes dramatically by the time you're on your fourth kid, because <laughs> it's like, bam, what was that? Oh, you ran into the wall. You'll be fine. fine. <laughs> Same thing happens. I don't know if you've noticed it with videos and pictures. Your first kid, it's like. Rrr! Video, I still hate watching video of our oldest, not because of him, but because I'm the one videoing him. I'm watching it like, Frank, turn off the video camera. We don't care. He hasn't moved. <laughs> Look at the baby. And by the time you get to the fourth kid, it's like, I think we have a picture of you here around somewhere. I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> but that first baby is just Terrifying. Then you add to that, where are we going to put this kid? It's already no beds. i got an idea. Let's, let's put it in the manger. Now, when you say manger, you've pretty much already romanticized that in your head. Because we picture this cradle that has fresh straw in it, that's perfectly fanned out and, and, and is wonderfully cushioning for the young child. Archaeologists have found stone mangers in the horse stables in Megiddo. They're cut out of limestone. That's comfortable. They're about three feet long, uh, 18 inches wide, and two feet deep. And there's nothing about a manger, also known as a feeding trough. There is nothing about a feeding trough that would make you think, hey, eh, I'd like to take a nap in there. It's disgusting not to mention surrounding the manger where the animals have drooled into the manger. Surrounding the manger are all the things that animals leave behind as they eat. And I'm not talking leftovers. <laughs> it's disgusting. We need to stop romanticizing the story. I mean, think, think about this, that God is coming to take away the sins of the world. If you were in charge of that event, what would it look like? Would it look like a 90 mile journey through some of the most treacherous terrain, some of the most dangerous places in the known world at the time? Would it look like a crowded, cramped quarters with no beds for the mom who is, to, is expecting and is going to deliver? Is it this baby being put in a feeding trough? Is that, is that what would you do? Or, or, or would you be a little bit more like me? Would you be like, okay, fireworks, television crews, you know, and, and, and all the luxurious items you can possibly think of? I still remember reading, and this is, this, I'm very cool, so you'll get this in a second. Beyonce and Jay-Z had a baby. The baby's name was Blue Ivy, okay, When they delivered that baby in downtown New York, they had actually uh, made sure that they had an entire hall to themselves in the maternity ward. They came in before Beyonce went in to deliver this child and they renovated the entire place. The delivery room came with coffee makers, um, a, a full stove, a little kitchen area, a refrigerator, 50 inch flat screen TV, which for a dad in a delivery room, that's a disaster. I was, when Jordan was born, they had ESPN on the little TV, and I can testify, any TV in a delivery room, particularly tuned to ESPN, is not good for your marriage. <laughs> I want to make sure that's clear in case you can dodge that. <laughs> would, would, would you orchestrate it so that this little baby, this, this God incarnate, this God who's come to take away the sins of the world, would be laid in a stranger's feeding trough? Wouldn't you want to display your glory, your supremacy, your power? But what God did is what God does. He displayed his power through weakness. He displayed his love for you in the middle of circumstances that every single one of us can relate to. Pain, terror, inconvenience, awkwardness, discomfort. Heartache, fear of everything. So, so picture this for a minute. You remember when, when, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he, he addressed her as the favored woman. He said, greetings, Mary. Oh, you favored woman. The Lord is with you. Contrast that with the story. I'm sorry, we don't have another bed for you. But he will be called great, the son of the most high. I guess you could take him and put him in the manger over there. See, the very circumstances that Mary found herself in would have been easy for her to begin to doubt God's presence. To doubt God's care to doubt God's promises to doubt God's love for her but that's not any different than you and I is it we know the Bible says clearly God loves us that he'll never leave us or forsake us right okay so when you hear that from the voice of God what happens when you hear from the doctor cancer and there's nothing we can do. What happens when you hear from the person you have spent your life loving and serving, I'm leaving, I found somebody else. What happens when you hear your daughter say, Mom, I don't ever want to talk to you again. What happens when you get that heartbreaking phone call From your daughter says, Daddy, I'm pregnant. What happens when you're sitting in the hospital room and they say, I'm sorry? Can't do anything. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. These circumstances... Excuse me, suck. Does that make this less true? I think the hard circumstances of life can cause us to question the love of God, the care of God, the promises of God. And then a lot of us can fall into the belief that because our lives are difficult, The circumstances are so impossible that God's love for us really doesn't exist. How real is God's love for you? God's love for you is so real that he kept promises that were impossible to keep just for you. Mm. You've never been with a man? Boom! You're pregnant. That's not unlikely. That's impossible. And yet God did that to keep the promise. See, There's going to be a virgin, and she will conceive, and she will bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God moved in the emperor of the world. I mean, you got to understand that Caesar Augustus, he's the emperor of the known world at the time. He moved in the heart of the emperor of the world to get little Mary, who was very pregnant, and her husband Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That wasn't just an unbelievable amount of timing. That was God demonstrating he was willing to do the impossible to keep his promises for you. God is willing to do the impossible to keep his promises for you. So what you need to understand is what God has promised and what God hasn't promised. Because many times our disappointment and discouragement with God's keeping of his promises has much more to do with the fact we misunderstand his promises. So so let's review a few. God promised a virgin would, uh, would bear a son. She promised that this son would be in the line of David and he would be born in Bethlehem. God promised to never leave us. And to never forsake us. God promises to finish the good work He has begun in us. God has promised to guard our eternal inheritance for us. But God never promised easy living, security, health, and wealth. God never promises ease in your victory over a besetting sin. God never promises freedom from trials. But he promises us that in the middle of all of that, he's going to be with you and he will keep his promise because love keeps its promise. Love steps into the middle of the messiest of messes. When you think about that, we, we rebelled against the creator God by choosing a piece of fruit over him. We continue to worship ourselves and to set ourselves up on the throne and shove him out of the way because we're the ones that matter most. And yet he came to rescue us, not being born in glory, but being born in humility. He didn't come to a palace, he came to a manger. He didn't come in silk pajamas. He came and was wrapped with strips of cloth Just hold him tight, just like any other peasant. God humbled himself for our sake. He made himself of no reputation, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. Now think about that, a servant that he created. And he took upon himself that form, and he allowed himself to be put to death, even death on the cross. Why? Why would he die for us? Because love sacrifices for the loved. And what God has done is is done exactly what we couldn't do for ourselves. There is no greater love of this. There is no greater picture of love than this than a man lays down his life for his friends. And what Jesus Christ did was in the middle of our heartbreaks, in the middle of our pains, in the middle of all of our frustrations, he showed up. Oh, so, okay, so my life's a mess, I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. I'm just supposed to smile and keep going because love keeps his promises. Love steps into the mess. Love sacrifices for the loved. A great word, Frank, thanks a lot. Nah, you don't need to smile. You don't. And what you need to do is believe truth. And the truth is this, and I know Oh, this is hard. You had a far bigger problem than your circumstances just not being good. I know in the middle of it, it doesn't feel like that's possible. But in reality, you had a far greater problem than just your circumstances being bad. You were dead, you weren't sick, you weren't injured. You were dead. There was no breath. There was no brainwave. You were dead. But God showed up. And he didn't show up to give you a better day. He didn't show up to deliver you from your circumstances. Man, I wish, I would love to be able to find the passage that says, good news, Jesus wants to pay off your debt. And I don't mean your spiritual one. That's not what he came to do. He came to make you alive. Came to rescue you, set you free, call you his own. In love, God has kept his promises. He stepped into the mess and he sacrificed for those he loved. And I'm going to close with a quote. And then I'm going to pray. I don't do quotes. I just steal sayings, but I don't do quotes. So, (laughs) a great theologian, Martin Luther, said this When I am told that God became man, (laughs) I can follow the idea, but I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? God laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. This is that infinite mercy of God, which the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend and much less utter that unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us? Who can sufficiently declare this exceeding great goodness of God? You are loved. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for a love that we really can't even comprehend. I think Luther says it so well. We, we know the facts, and we can spew data, but God, to really be able to wrestle with the fact that you showed up for us, there's no greater picture of love. Lord, I ask that you would give us grace for the moment. It's all we can handle is the moment. May we, Father, understand what it is that you have for us, how you've loved us, His circumstances being what they are. <laughs> Lord, may we rest in the reality that the name Emmanuel doesn't mean I have a good day tomorrow. It means I live at peace with you for eternity. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.